Well, good morning. Well, we're continuing in the series, Find Your Way Back to God, and it's based on a book called Find Your Way Back to God, a book that uh, Dave and John Ferguson wrote. Um, we get a treat next week, by the way. Dave is going to be here. Dave Ferguson, one of the authors, is going to be here to do the third message in the series, so you're going to want to make sure that you're here for that. The book is not required reading at all, but if you would like to continue study after the message on Sunday, then you're going to want to head to the cafe, pick up a book. The church doesn't make a dime on them. Um, but if you want to do that, pick up the book and uh, follow along as we continue over the next five weeks. Before we get started with week number two, I want to ask you, how many of you use an alarm clock to wake up? Yeah. It might not look like this, right? You're like, Rob, this is from Leave it to Beaver days, right? <laughs> but, um, and I don't need an alarm clock. I'm one of those morning people that wakes up before it and they stand above it, waiting for the alarm to go off and then you hit it. But here's, here's what I have found with uh, the effectiveness of alarm clocks. The effectiveness of an alarm clock is directly proportional to the person's desire to actually hear it and pay attention to it, right? It's only as good as somebody's gonna do something about the alarm that's going off. I experienced this truth uh, back in the 80s when I was dating Kim, I went, my wife Kim, I went down to their house for the very first time and my brother-in-law uh, gave up his, his room. Uh, he actually slept on the floor in the room with me. I got the bed. It was a Thursday night that I arrived and so he had to go to school the next morning. It's 6 a.m. I'm on vacation, so I'm still sleeping. I'm not sitting there like this. 6 a.m., alarm goes off. And I hear my brother-in-law, Brett, go, oh, it's news. So I go over to the side of the bed, and I can finally hear where the sound's coming from, and I hit snooze. No sooner did I get to sleep did it go off again. And I look I'm squinting, and it's three minutes after the first alarm. This is in the 80s, so we don't have configurable snooze alarms. They're usually about 10 minutes, and this is baffling me. So I, Brett says, can you snooze again? So I go and hit what I think is the alarm clock, and I hit snooze, and it keeps making the alarm sound. Well, what I figured out is he has two alarm clocks. He had another one on the floor that I hit snooze. Well, three minutes later, it goes off again. And I'm like, well, I know it's not a three-minute snooze on the second alarm clock. There's no such thing as a six-minute snooze for the first alarm clock. So there has to be a third. Sure enough, he has three alarm clocks. And so for the next 45 minutes to about an hour, I'm just hitting snooze one after the other. You might say, well, why would you do that? I had just started dating Kim. <laughs> there is no way I was going to not hit snooze for him. And all of a sudden, my mother-in-law shows up in the doorway after about an hour and says, Brett, you have to be at Eric's house in three minutes. And all of a sudden, he becomes aware of his current situation. He realizes, i got to wake up. And sure enough, he probably had a rushed day, but... This thing is only as good as the person who's willing or their desire to pay attention to it. And it's what we're going to look at in today's story with the prodigal son, the young son. 
he has awakening that something has got to change. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we do want to get Bibles in your hands. So I'm going to ask that the ushers come down at this point. They have Bibles. If you don't have one or you forgot yours today, you can signal to them. They'll give a Bible to you. If you don't have one, please, this is a gift from the church to you. You can take it home. Or if you just need to follow along, you can do that for this morning. Well, Dave and John's book covers five awakenings that they have seen as they have pastored people along the way, helping them find their way back to God. They've seen these five awakenings over and over again. And if you've been around LifePoint, you know that showing people, helping people find their way back to God is what drives us all. It makes this community right here, it makes our hearts beat collectively. We, the way we word this is helping people connect with God. And many of you have done that here at LifePoint, found your way back to God. Others have done it in other places. And so you may be sitting here going, I think I might be hitting snooze for the next four weeks because I've already found my way back to God. Well, I want to tell you, even as a Christ follower, this series is going to speak to you. And here's why. Our relationship with God has peaks and valleys, doesn't it? Over and over again, we see that we have this tendency for ourselves to kind of wander and turn from God, but that he requires us to do the same thing that we did the very first time that we found our way back to him, and that is to turn and just come back to him. And so finding your way back to God is a life-changing moment for sure but it is also a life-growing process where we, over and over again as Christ followers, have to turn and come back to him. Last week, we looked at the first awakening, and that's the awakening to longing. That, that thing inside of us, that longing, that desire to want to be loved, to have meaning and purpose in life. And it's kind of what gives us that unrest inside of us. And we look to fulfill it because we think, hey, there's got to be something more. And too often, what we end up doing is setting on a path to go fulfill that apart from God. And that's where we left our story last week. The youngest son had made a very interesting request of the father. You won't find my translation in your Bible, but basically he went and said, Hey, Dad, you know that inheritance you gave me? I am so sick of this place. I'm sick of living under your roof. I'm ready to get out of here. So whatever was coming to me, why don't you just give it to me right now? And to ask somebody for their inheritance and say it that way is like saying, I wish you were dead. But let's pretend that you are, since you're not, and give me everything that I have coming to me. And some of us can kind of connect with this youngest son. I don't think we, we would go, hey, God, I don't need you in my life. But rather we say, I really like the things that you can give me. I really love the, the family, the job, the friends, all of those things. And so like the son, we like the things that are provided more than we like the provider 
or pursue the provider of those things. And so that's where we find that young son. He's wrestling with that longing, and he's gone off on his own to fulfill that. And we read in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in living. He's finally out from his father's, you picture the scene, right? He's like, yes, I'm free. I'm no longer under my parents' roof, right? I just wish that we got a little bit more on that wild living. What did that look like, right? All we read is, you know, spent his money, wild living. But I think we can all imagine of what that really looked like. Because when you run from God, you tend to run to destructive things. That's what happens. And so I can picture him getting his own place, a sweet condo, right? Flat screen, sound bar, all the toys and everything to go with it. Having parties, girls, music, doing everything he couldn't do at home, he's able to do here. Has a reality show with his friends on ETV. <laughs> right? All of those things. We don't know what happened. All we read is wild living. But what we do know is that he blew through all of his money. And look in verse 14, that there was a famine that hit the, the country. And so to me, I think the alarms start to go off. You could almost imagine as this famine started to hit, what happens? People start showing up at his door need the keys to the car. Give me the apartment keys. You've lost your job. All of a sudden, all of these things start to go away, and the alarms are going off. And this son who was living based on all of his wants, all of a sudden has some very serious needs. And it gets so bad that we heard in the opening reading of the scripture that he gets a job feeding pigs, which for us, we're like, oh, okay. But as Jesus is telling this story to the people, the Jewish people, they understand pigs are unclean. They are not to be around the pigs. So for them, they're going, ooh, that's bad. That's really, really bad. It got so bad, he looked around, nobody would even give him the food that the pigs were eating. He could not even get that. And he finds himself face down in a pig pen. And that's where he experiences the second awakening that we're going to look at today. And that's the awakening to regret, where you say, ah, oh, I wish I could have a do-over. How did I get here? And maybe you are there. Maybe you have been there where you've chased stuff, thinking it would fulfill you, and it's only led you to frustration, loneliness, anger, and you've made some bad decisions, and you feel like you're face down in a pig pen. You're either there or you have felt that before. Maybe for some, what it had started out was just a fun poker game with some guys, made a few bucks. That happened once a month. Then it happened twice a month. And then that wasn't enough, and so you ended up going online 
and using the online ways to gamble. And then the alarm started to go off because you had to put up collateral like your house and other things to start to cover your bets. The alarms start going off. Maybe for some face down for you feels like you once were able to control your world of worry and anxiety. You could control friends. You could control your job. You could control family. Now you're in a spot where you try everything that you used to do to bring your world into control and it doesn't work anymore. And you find yourself hopeless and in a very, very dark spot. And you understand what the sun's going through. For some, you never thought that you would go to the places that you've gone, done the things that you've done, all because you want to be liked. And so you seek these friends that have taken you to places you wish you'd never gone to, and now you're facing consequences that you're not sure you can get out of. Maybe some are chasing that need for love, but again, in a distant land. And so you're starting to go on the online world and ping the person who's your college sweetheart or your high school sweetheart, just a simple message. And then it's a couple messages a day. Now the alarms are going off because people in your family are starting to recognize a difference in you. And now you don't know what you're going to do. Maybe you're chasing pleasure. And all the online gaming and the endless Netflix have made your grades suffer. And you find yourself not standing over an alarm, but standing over the mailbox hoping to get the grades and the report cards before your parents get the report card. Maybe you feel just like the young son here, face down in a pig pen. And I realize that I just said a lot of things that may be stung for some people, but I want you to hear right now, there's hope. There is a turn in this story and so I want you to come with me and, and look for this hope as we go through here. Please hear that. Look at the turn, starting in verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here, I'm dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. There are two pieces of this story that I want to look at in the remaining time that we have together. The first being when he came to his senses. And then I want to look at, I will set out and go back to my father. Because these are two turning points in the story. Do you see it? These are turning points. He came to his senses, however long that took, minutes, days, hours, weeks, he finally woke up. He woke up to regret, and maybe that's where you are. You're right there. I, I want to do over again. But here's what I know, that there are folks in here that haven't, are not, they're not there yet. There's not the regret, but there may be alarms that are going off. That family and friends and coworkers have sat you down and said, do you see how your life is going on, getting out of control? And you're like, seems like it's in control to me. 
I'm not hitting rock bottom, and if I do, then I'll, I'll change. But the young son does something that's so important in the story, and it's something that we each need to do. It's this. Finding my way back to God requires that I acknowledge that I'm heading in the wrong direction. I was reminded of this very point uh, two weeks ago. I'm sitting at an intersection with my left blinker on, and the car behind me, the guy's, I'm looking at my mirror, and he's like, don't, I'm like, what is his problem? It's completely open right there. Across, they're at a stoplight as well, and they're doing the same thing. Like, buddy, will you look? I'm like, I'm looking, there's nobody there. Take a left turn up a one-way street, only to see oncoming traffic. Then I listened, didn't I? Oh! You see, finding our way back to God requires that we acknowledge that we're going in the wrong direction. And your attitude may be, I'm fine. I'm not there yet. But the alarms will sound. You see, when you journey into a distant land, the alarms will sound. And so what if God is using this moment today to help you avoid heartbreak in a distant land in the future? Pay attention. Listen. You may not know where you need to go, but may this be that moment. It's such an important part of our story here. It's such an important part of finding your way back to God. I want you to listen to Jake's testimony because he got to a point where he understood this. Please look at the screens. Uh, I grew up in a, a Christian home um, with two parents who also grew up in, in Christian families. When I was young, about seven, my, my parents moved to a camp in central Illinois, a Christian youth camp. And that was a really, really cool way to grow up, uh, just surrounded by youth groups and, and Christian kids. And coupled with that, I also grew up in the church, surrounded by a family that uh, didn't just believe it, but they lived it. You know, I had a faith. I saw how it had played out in my family's lives, but I did not have a direction. And I did not have a purpose that I felt like I was being pulled towards or, or called to, just kind of searching, longing for a fulfillment that it seemed like everybody else in my family had. After, you know, searching from school to church, um, you know, the slopes of Colorado, I think I finally came down to, well, I want to pursue music in some sort. And I had a cousin in Nashville, and I finally just said, all right, let's go, let's try it. And then I moved down to Nashville, just hoping to find music or write or play, or yeah, I wasn't really sure. Um, and just started bartending and waiting tables. Alongside that was, was just a, a life of partying, uh, pleasure, I mean, just fun. Uh, it was great, I'm not gonna lie, it was a blast. I had a lot of fun, but it's also very unhealthy. It just became continual, just meeting girls and, and drinking by five years in. I had moments where I laughed at myself and knew fools do this, you are living like a fool. Probably a year and a half after that, six and a half years in, uh, by that point, it was serious. It was drinking every day as soon as I get up, 
uh, because I would have a horrible hangover. And I was starting to think, this is gonna be rough, making it change at this point. He started to have that wake-up moment. We're going to pick up his story in just a little bit. But he's starting to realize where his brilliant plans had taken him, his plans to go fulfill those longings in a different place. And I think we understand what, that, what can happen as we start to chase and pursue those things that we think that we want. But coming to your senses, that first part, that's, that's the very first thing that's needed in order to experience new life. Richard Rohr, a uh, Franciscan priest and an author, says it this way. You cannot heal what you do not acknowledge. And what you do not consciously acknowledge will, will remain in control of you from within, festering and destroying you and those around you. Many, many of us understand this all, all too well, but we're hoping that today is a wake-up call where you say, I've landed in a spot that's a far cry from where I wanted to be, and that today may be one of those points where you say, I'm done running to a distant land. I'm coming home. That's the second part I want to look at. We read again, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here, I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. The son doesn't just come to his senses. That's one part of it. But he also sets out to go back to the father. And this is such a beautiful picture of what the church calls repentance. It's a beautiful picture. You see, the, the second piece of coming home is just as important as that first piece as we turn. You see, the son recognized that he was doing wrong. He came to his senses. He woke up, and then he turned and went home. It's those two things, and it's a beautiful picture, like I said, of repentance. If you've been in the church before, any amount of time, you've probably heard that word repentance. And you're probably like, oh, that's not a good word. Oh, it gets a bad rap. I think it gets a bad rap for two reasons. One, I don't think we've explained it well enough as a church. I'll talk about that in a second. But number two, I also think as Christ followers, you can speak to some Christ followers and say, listen, I associate, they don't say this, but this is what I think. Um, repentance equals guilt, and I am not supposed to feel guilty as a Christ follower, therefore, away with that repentance. But that's not true at all. Paul clears this up when he talks to the believers in Corinth. I love it. He says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin, away from a distant land. And to me, I add, and toward him. And it results in salvation. Get this, there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. You see, part of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us. And not in such a way that I will run to a distant land, but in such a way that I will turn and run toward God. And I won't feel the regret and the shame but I'll be drawn to him. 
The other reason with repentance that it gets a bad rap is I think we only ever hear it in the terms where they say, listen, if you don't repent, then you are going to spend an eternity apart from God, not in heaven, but in hell. That is true, but it doesn't give you the full understanding of what this word repent and repentance means. And when you look at the original words that are used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament with the original language for the words that we get translated repent and repentance, there's a common theme between both testaments that gets at the emotional state where you realize that, you're, that what you're doing is wrong. Both of them have that. But then I love how each of them brings one other thing to the table because there's a few other one other form in each testament that's used that brings out a trait that really conveys this picture. In the, in the New Testament, the, when it's repent, there's another form that means to change one's mind, to agree with. And then in the Old Testament, there's a, a form of uh, what gets translated repent that means to return, to return home, to where you belong. And so do you see in this story, Jesus is telling the son comes to his senses. He realizes what he's doing is wrong and he turns and he goes home. He returns to the father. What a beautiful picture of repentance, which literally means to change your thinking, to agree with God that your way is better than my way in a distant land and I'm coming home. You see, we don't have to get stuck in this cycle of longing and regret. This is such an important second piece that I want to hit pause because it has the power to change your life. My guess is a lot of us recognize we've woken up in that cycle of, I wish I could start over, right? Ah. Oh. I've been there. I know. I've made bad financial decisions. I've made bad relational decisions. I've made decisions in the moment just because it felt good, but it only led me to the same spot. I think every one of us can go, been there, got it. But here's, we never get to the second step of returning home because we think, how could they ever take us back? Will they take me back? Will God accept me? Will he forgive me? And the shame and the guilt and the fear, and instead of running to God, we run away because we don't think that we can go home. And so we're stuck in this cycle of longing, regret. Regret doesn't feel well. Go our way, fill the longing. Wake up and you're stuck in this cycle, but it doesn't have to be. This is the hopeful thing of the story today. That cycle can break. All of that can change today because you can begin to recognize I'm going the wrong way. God, I agree with you. I'm going the wrong way and to start to turn. We're going to talk more in the up upcoming weeks about what that exactly means, but know this, you cannot go at it alone. We have life sealing choices starting October 21st. It's in your program. If any of this is resonating with you this morning, you need to check life sealing choices and make that additional part of your journey to coming home because you don't have to be stuck in that cycle 
forever. You have a father who is waiting for you to come home. Many people have experienced this moment. Some draw the line in the sand through baptism. But baptism is a way to say, God, I'm done doing this myself. I'm telling the world, I'm done. I'm out of here. I need God. I need you, Jesus. And in two weeks, you're going to have the opportunity for baptism as well. Baptism doesn't mean that you've got it all together. It doesn't mean that you're not going to wander again. It just means that you're saying, I'm coming home, and that's the place I want to stay. And so like last week, we want to throw out a challenge again. We call it Pascal's Wager. It's kind of a, a bet. We're asking you to place a bet with God. You're like, ooh, should you do that? But many of you joined in last week in this, and you said, I will pray this prayer. I, I'm not sure, some, I'm not sure about God, others, I'm, I'm fully on board. But no matter where I am, many of you said, I will pray that prayer. I'll take up Pascal's wager. We want to add to that prayer, and will you accept this challenge this week? Here's, here's how we want you to pray. God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Awaken in me the possibility that with you, I can start over again. And if you do, as we did last week, uh, text PRAY1 to the, there is the number on the screen, PRAY1 to 919-626-3025, we will send you a reminder daily about that prayer. And we will encourage you and, and support you daily. So accept the challenge, get your daily in, encouragement because it's going to help you come to your senses and find your way home. Jake was willing to entertain that possibility that life could be different, not by himself, but with God. Check out the screen. I was pretty functional uh, considering. Went to work and maintained this I party every night kind of attitude. And I partied openly every night so that when people would smell it on me the next day. It was normal because, well, guy parties every night. I was at my sister and brother-in-law's house, uh, checking on their house. They were in South America uh, for his work. And I was drinking and I just had this totally normal moment of going, this has to stop. Like, I, I, I have to stop, I, I will die at some point from this if I don't. And I couldn't stop that night because I had to work the next three days and I knew it's gonna be ugly and I won't, I won't be able to work. I knew after Wednesday night at work I would have four days off in a row. So I prayed to God that night. I said, God, I need to stop drinking on Wednesday. <laughs> so please keep me safe for the next three days. So that night, Wednesday night, I went back to my sister and brother-in-law's and took my last drink and went to bed. And I would say I woke up four or five in the morning with immediate DTs. This was not a, a day later, this was hours. And I mean, I couldn't see straight, kind of hyperventilating. I'd had one before, so I knew exactly what it was. I'd had the doctor explain it to me. So that started Thursday morning really early before the sun came up and that just went all day, all night, Friday, all day, all night. And I should have, you know, been with a doctor, 
nurse, been at a rehab center, something, just to make sure I was okay. But uh, as I was laying there, I just kept remembering this prayer from a book about a Celtic monk that I loved growing up. My dad introduced me to the author. The prayer that he goes to anytime he doesn't know what to do is, Lord have mercy. And it's just, he repeats it. It just becomes this meditation. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. And that's what I did from, from Thursday morning till Saturday. Knowing the whole time and kind of laughing at myself that like, I really don't deserve this, this mercy, this grace, but asking anyway and receiving it. Saturday morning, I think the last DT was around 11 o'clock. And then I got up and I started drinking water and started keeping water down. And Saturday night, I finally slept. Just fell asleep, crashed out, and got up the next day and went to church. That was pretty much my first response. Talked to the campus pastor that Sunday morning and said, this is where I'm at, uh, what, what can I do? Who can I talk to? How can I get connected? See, Jake realized that that cycle of longing and regret can be broken. And he was willing to entertain that possibility that life could be different, not by himself, but with God. You see, the prodigal son story, it's your story, it's my story, it's our story that we can come home. We're going to do something here as we end our service. It's something we do every week here at LifePoint, and that is take communion together. Communion is one of those special times that your Christ followers remember what he's done for them. But I think as we come to communion today, let, let's look through the lens of the prodigal story. Because those communion elements in this time is a reminder that, you know what, as a Christ follower... You are the prodigal son, and God is the father. And he was willing to absorb the pain for you running to a distant land. But you know what? He loved you too much to leave you with no way back to home. And that Jesus' sacrifice was an invitation home. And today, as a Christ follower, you need to be reminded that just like the first time you turned home, that Jesus Christ was the pathway home, well, guess what? He still is the pathway home for you. And so as the band plays this morning, you can find your communion elements in your seat pockets and by your feet in the front here. Don't worry about singing. There's going to be no words. I want you to listen to the words and reflect on those words. And just maybe you're in the spot as a Christ follower, you have started to wander a little bit. Just agree with God that you're wandering and say, I'm, I'm headed home. There's, there's no set amount of prayers you have to pray. There's no service hours that you have to log. The pathway home is still the same, and that's the body and blood of Jesus Christ provides a way home for you. As the band plays, you take the elements and reflect on the song.